Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Episode 49 is dedicated to the memory of John Wilkes, who passed away suddenly in December, shortly before Christmas. John was passionate about football, family, and his friends. Cherry Orchard, Shamrock Rovers, Celtic, the Irish national team and Leicester City were his teams and he followed them home and away over many years. He got to see Rovers winning the league and Celtic doing the quadruple treble before his sad passing. John was a great supporter of this fans in over the years and would buy 10 copies of each issue to give to his customers free in his taxi. He loved the midweek trip and was a regular on European adventures with his close mates in St. Margaret's Celtic Supporters Club and he was no stranger to a cold, wet night with a few Guinness in the pub en route to Dundee or Cardiff. With COVID-19 restrictions and numbers limited to attend his funeral, Hoops fans lined the street outside the church to say farewell to a great football man. Rest easy, John. You'll be forever in our hearts. I'm Andrew Millen and you're all very welcome back to the Celtic Soul Podcast, episode 49 and the first of the year 2021. Today on the show I'll be chatting to David Lowe, who is the current chair of the Celtic Trust. David has forged a career in finance and was involved in the takeover of Celtic back in 1994. So I'm looking forward to hearing David's story and his take on what's going on at Celtic on and off the park. Unlike most of my guests on the show, I've never met David before, but I've heard him speak recently at the Celtic Trust meetings, and I have to say I've been very impressed with his knowledge and information on finance, football, and the workings of the current Celtic board and previous powers in the boardroom. This episode has been kindly sponsored by Eugene Kavner of Orange Skippo. Thank you very much to Eugene for his support of the podcast, and I have to say Eugene has supported the fanzine for over 20 years, from issue 1 to issue 112, which comes out next week. If your business or Celtic Supporters Club like the podcast and you would like to become a sponsor, please email us at info at CelticFanzine.com and you can also contact us on the website or on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast and you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, you can do so by visiting CelticFanzine.com where you can become a member, subscribe, buy some of our merchandise or donate for the price of a point. As always, we promise no unwanted Google type adverts on our website within our articles and no unwanted advert interruptions on the podcast. We're trying to keep it real. We're trying to 
keep it independent. We haven't gone down the Patreon route, so your support means we can continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, podcast, video content, free live static fan events when we're back in the saddle and hopefully with the vaccine now we will be soon. If you're not in a position to financially support us, don't worry, you'll still get the same quality content delivered free. The reaction to the podcast last year was really good and I love to see all the comments coming in, especially the nice ones. Although we don't get too many bad ones, I suppose. And the suggestions for guests. Trust me, we've reached out to every suggestion that you made for a guest. Some come back and say they're not interested and others come back and say, yeah, we'd love to be on the show or we'd like to be on the show. So thank you so much for all those suggestions. Some great comments and feedback on Eddie Toner's podcast, which was episode 48. Check it out if you haven't listened to it yet. Here's some of the comments that came in after that podcast. Podcasts are too many and filled with very similar contributors. Your podcast is filled with not just love and passion for Celtic, it also has clarity, intelligence and vision on important issues affecting the future of Celtic FC. And that comes in from Billy Lyon 67 on Twitter. Thanks very much, Billy, for those compliments. This is a superb listen, a brilliant history of Celtic fan organisation and movement we need to re-engage with. Eddie Towner gives a compelling argument for joining the Celtic Trust and traces the history of fan activism within Celtic. Don't moan, organise. And again, that was on Twitter and it comes from DGM. Brilliant, positive 90 minutes of Celtic chat. Eddie Celtic history. Looking forward to Sunday and the history it is going to bring. Looking forward to being back in the ground on a, a toll boot morning after session, hopefully in the not so distant future. And that comes in from Brendan on Twitter. What Eddie doesn't know about Celtic over the last number of decades isn't worth knowing. A Celtic man true and true, a born leader and a man I have looked up to for the last two decades and more. And that comes in from the Celtic Early Years Twitter feed to think it's Brendan Sweeney. Thank you very much, Brendan. You played no small part yourself in the takeover of Celtic. So we're delighted to have you listening. Hi, just a quick note to say thanks for the podcast. I've really enjoyed them. Top quality listening. Thanks, Andrew. Hail, hail from Frankie McDonald, Lennox Town Celtic Supporters Club. Hi Andrew, just wanted to say many thanks for all the fantastic pods this past six to seven months. Just caught up with the Mark Bokwin this morning, a very interesting perspective on the growth of the Irish tick supporters. Love the one about the Liverpool tickets, real quality, you'll never walk alone and that comes from Alan McDonald. Was great listening to Eddie's story that came in from Dennis Bonner, I think on their Facebook feed. Another thoroughly enjoyable podcast from Andrew Millen, this time with a great friend of our Celtic Supporters Club, Eddie Toner, talking about growing up in Celtic, his involvement with the Celtic Supporters Association, his belief in the Celtic Trust, and a rather eventful trip to Bal. And that comes in from the Nave Park Celtic Supporters Club feed. Again, Mark Bork's been on the podcast. You want to check out his one. Very good. Cracking podcast with Eddie. Then that comes in from Hullboy on Twitter again. A joyous podcast with Eddie Toner, reminiscing about growing up following Celtic. The hours needed to commit to being a Celtic Supporters Association official and fan activist. Highlight is the stories about collecting the FIFA Fan Award post Seville. Eddie is Celtic FC for me and others like him. That comes here from Danny Boyle. Jesus lads, these podcasts are top draw. Really enjoyed Eddie Toner's story. What a man. Might not be able to get away to watch Celtic at the moment or see my family in Glasgow, but your podcasts are a good little Celtic story getaway. Fair play lads. And that comes in from Chris Riley. Folks, keep all the comments coming in. Uh, it's just brilliant to I suppose, play a little part in the Celtic fan scene. We've, we've been doing it for 20 years and hopefully now with the podcast and a few other bits and pieces, we can continue into the next 20. Well, so much has happened in a short space of time. How can so much happen in less than a month? Think to myself, where do we start? After chatting to Eddie Tone on the last podcast before Christmas, we were looking forward to the cup final. So congratulations to Celtic. But my God, you put us through every emotion possible before Big Air put the ball in the net. 
But the hangover that followed wasn't quite emotional, but it was well water. I suppose it was a, a bit of joy in some dark times on the football field for Celtic. Over the festive period, the arrival of Sorrow and Turnbull seemed to kick things on with performances and results much improved before the big one at Ibrox. We dominated that one before Bitten saw red and even Stephen Gerrard couldn't believe his luck. He must have been praying for a draw at half-time and walked away with all three points. Then Dubai happened. A leaked picture of Neil Lennon and Scott Brown having a beer at the pool, taken and posted by an opportunist, sent on social media before the moral uproar. At this stage, I'm not bothered. They followed all the protocols, although it could not be classed as an essential travel trip or a walk out and could it really. I was surprised at the timing of the trip because we have no winter break and it was such a short trip and such a big expense at a time when fans are asking questions why the Kana Foundation charity had to stump up cash for the season books, why the younger players in the youth teams have been followed. You know, the Kano kids will never get in this season and I don't know, I just maybe it was just too big of an expense and too big of a risk. But anyway, it turned into a terrible PR exercise for the club. I think you'll all agree. We had the Scottish government leader, Nicola. She's given out about the trip. Even though the Scottish government and the football authorities both gave the seal of approval to the trip, the media, both mainstream and some of the so-called fan media, loved it and the sensational headlines that followed. At this stage, I'm still not bothered. Dubai is open for business, the team are in the bubble and it's as safe as anywhere else. The team arrive home after, I think it was five days, and John Kennedy takes a press conference, answer the questions on the trip and says that the team are waiting for the latest COVID test to come back. I'm still not bothered. And then I hear a whisper that Julian has tested positive. He's the player. I'm still not bothered because after all, Julian's injured and surely he wasn't taken to Dubai. But it transpires he was. And now I'm confused. Why would an injured player travel halfway across the world for a short training session he can't take part in? Then the fallout happens. And I'm not bothered, but I'm still confused. But I'm shocked and it's another PR disaster. When I read the Celtic statement to say Tutti and unnamed players have to isolate and then social media goes into overload again with rumours of who the players are. Why did Celtic not release the names along with Neil Lennon and John Kennedy's in the statement? They all had to isolate. Now I'm bothered and now I'm pissed off because we have an important game and we're missing all these players. And fair play to the players who came in against Hibs. After a shaky start, they grew into the game, although offered little in the opposition box. But when Turnbull's free kick, what a cracker it was, hit the back of the net, I thought we've got out of jail here. But we conceded a late goal. A mix of a silly foul, a goalkeeping mistake and more poor defending as we continue to shoot ourselves in the foot. Something has to change now sooner rather than later. We can't continue to watch Celtic stumble from one disaster to another. I don't normally disagree with Chris Boyd, but maybe he's right when he says Celtic could have played a midweek game and Hibs on Saturday instead of going to Dubai and could have secured six points and narrowed the gap. David Lowe is the current chair of the Celtic Trust. He has forged a successful career in finance and was involved back in 1994 in the Celtic takeover. Hi David, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast at a time when Celtic are storming through the season on and off the paradise grass. Great to be here, looking forward to the questions. Well then we'll kick off David, um, finance is your background and we seem to be heading into a recession after this pandemic, or if we finally get out of it. How do you see it affecting Celtic football in general and in particular in Scotland? Well, I think what's happening with the coronavirus is affecting everybody everywhere. Uh, football clubs are no different than any other businesses, uh, no different than, than everybody's own personal households. And for that matter, no, no different from countries in which you live in. And that is everybody is having a very rough time. 
nobody's really earning the money or the amount of money they would they hope to or previously did own. And when that happens, you basically have to live off your savings, if you have any, or borrow some money, if you can borrow money. But once your savings are finished and once you can't borrow anything else, you've got a problem. So as we speak, whether it's a country, whether it's a business, i.e. a football club, or whether it's a household, everybody is, to all intents and purposes, running down their savings, borrowing more money just to uh, try and stay, stay still, so to speak. So it's, a, it's an extremely uh, difficult, stressful, uh, horrible time for just about everybody everywhere. And uh, everybody wants it to be over as soon as possible. But that, that is the backdrop that everybody uh, has just now. Uh, your question was about Celtic. So Celtic is the, is the club that we are interested in. And Celtic went into the pandemic, you know, with a lot of cash in the bank. Celtic increased their borrowing facility to off the top of the head, 13 million. Celtic have a billionaire cornerstone investor, if you want to use business speak, uh, backing Celtic. So when you add all of that up, you know, Celtic are pretty well equipped, you know, to deal with the situation we all find ourselves in. But the longer it goes on, the more of the our, our economic advantage starts to erode because we're running down our cash. I don't believe we're using any uh, more debt yet because we all ponied up for our 50,000 50, season tickets earlier this year. But it can't go on forever. Uh, but Celtic are very financially uh, strong and able to uh, withstand uh, the situation that we find ourselves in right now. There's one other point that's crucial. We are a football team club that plays in a league. We've got to have people to play against. There's no good being the soundest club in Christendom if all your competitors are going bust or... Uh, or disappear. So it's in our interest to see the league that we currently play in survive because if, we, if it doesn't survive, you know, where do we play? So these are all the factors that I think are relevant right here, right now. And in sadly, as you, you mentioned, we have a billionaire. I suppose during the pandemic, it's a good thing to have a billionaire in your car. That, that's what I was saying, I, I, Andrew, you know, I, uh, you know, Dermot's like a, is, is the Marmite man for every guy that uh, appreciates the value in having a billionaire. There, there's another guy, a girl that you know would say, "Get rid of him and get rid of all the others that, that they think are responsible for where we are." But yeah, having a billion—let's be clear—having a billionaire in your corner during a global pandemic is quite a good thing to have if you can put your politics and your emotions to one side at least until the virus is over. And the, the other uh, income day you spoke about was season books. Now, most people thought they would get back in at some stage. They thought we were on the way to cruising to a 10 in a row. And they've spent their money. They've had a virtual experience, which is as a mixed reaction. And now it's the time of year again where Celtic are going to have to come and look for people to pay for season books. So... What I'm hearing is that people have said, no, I'm not going to um, renew because I got nothing for this year. And then, as you say, 
you know, every household will more than likely be suffering through this pandemic. Or they won't have the same cash coming in as they once had. Although they won't have to spend either because there's nowhere to go and spend it. You see that the you know, waiting list of Celtic fans ready to jump in to pick up if a season group has dropped, or do you see the revenue from season groups increasing next year? Yeah, well, what I'm about to say, I have to emphasise like a personal opinion, you know, because we will all have our own personal views. But it's my personal opinion that Celtic are entering the most crucial period in their history since, I would say, the takeover in uh, 1994. So why, why do I say that? Uh, we've been kings of the castle, you know, since Rangers were liquidated in, in 2012. We've sort of been uh, the, the, uh, the, the best team by a mile. We've got a quadruple treble, which we won this season, you know, the, the, the last cup, of course. Uh, so this, this year, or la- the end of last year for a cup this, this year, uh, and I think the whole club from top to bottom, and I include the fans in this, got a, a bit complacent, maybe even a bit arrogant. They were used to winning everything in sight. And suddenly, uh, you know, what's happened is it has come as a shock. But at the beginning of the season, uh, nobody really knew how long this virus was going to last for. Everybody knew we were going for the magical 10 in a row. Everybody was fueled with enthusiasm and everybody sort of inverted commas gladly subscribed for their £500 season ticket in the full knowledge that they weren't going to get conventional value, i.e. sitting in their own seat for 25 or, or, or so games a season. But they did it uh, because of what was at stake. Well, season ticket renewals usually go out about March, April and the backdrop is obviously materially healthy. Indeed, it's very unhealthy. Uh, The virus has lasted a lot longer than everybody uh, uh, thought at the outset. It's extremely unlikely that we will now win the league. Not impossible, but uh, very unlikely. Uh, Everybody's emotionally fraught. A lot of Celtic fans are very angry and looking for people to blame. Uh, and when you add all that up, that's a real cocktail of negative emotions. So you can take bets or run a book and uh, how many season tickets our club is going to sell against that backdrop. I suspect it will probably need a change in the dynamic, you know, to, uh, to uh, reset, to recalibrate, uh, re-excite. Uh, Celtic fans uh, get them re-motivated I think that's a big challenge for uh, the people that are running the club and I've no doubt uh, whatsoever that uh, this is the way they are thinking you know, what, what, how are we going to deal with this it's a very crucial period uh, for the club You've been in business, you know the business world uh, Peter Lowell it's been well documented that he's a very well paid CEO which is Deal he's obviously struck himself. I don't know what way his he his bonuses work or what um, structure at the club is. But he's been there for thirteen years. Do you think he will leave at the end of the year? Because I hear whispers before the AGM he was going to announce he was leaving, but he's not. Because I, I'm not questioning people always love Celtic because I, I know his family, I know his brother. His brother lives in my hometown, and I know he's a Celtic man. He's also a businessman. And it would look from the outside, from a fan looking in to that boardroom, that he is 
all the same. And that you know, maybe there is a bit of dissent in there, but you know, it, it seems to be well hidden because I've never heard anyone coming out speaking out about his longevity at the club because it it, it seems now that it has passed sellboy date. Yeah, yeah, very many say that. But let, let, let's clarify a, a, a few issues then. It is not Peter Lawwell that decides whether Peter Lawwell stays or whether he goes. It's the board of directors that decide whether uh, Peter stays or Peter goes. And there's a thing called, uh, and it's a statutory thing, a legal thing, a stock exchange thing. Uh, there's a thing called a, a nominations committee. And there's a remuneration committee as well as an audit committee. And it's the remuneration committee which is made up of, uh, off the top of the head, three directors that decide how much uh, Peter gets paid. Uh, and um, and he, he does get paid very well. And there's no for a company of that size, because it is a company that happens to be engaged in the business of football. But it's not him that decides how much he gets paid. It's not him that decides how much or whether he stays or he goes. That's the whole board. And the board is, uh, you could say, two splits in it. You've got what's called the executive directors, which is Peter Lawwell and uh, Chris Mackay, the finance director. They're the guys that are there, there full time. And they're the guys that get paid the big wages. The rest of the board consists of uh, non-executive directors, of which there's off the top of the head again, because I don't want some wise-ass correcting me if I get, <laughs> get it wrong. <laughs> uh, I think there's five. I think there's five uh, non-executive directors. One of which is the chairman, a guy called Ian Bankier, and then you've got uh, you know four others, as, uh, including Dermot, who's who's uh, non-executive. And a relatively new lady called, uh, I think it's Sarah Brown. I say think because she's got a very low profile and I wouldn't know her if she walked past me in the street. But that's by the by. So the job of a non-executive director is to question the, the executives, to determine whether they're doing a good job or a bad job, to assess them. And, you know, that's the job they're, they're uh, supposed to be doing. But to be a non-executive director, you have to be, you know, independently minded. And all of these people, bar uh, Mrs. Brown or Miss Brown, have been there for more than nine years. They don't look, and they don't sound very independent to me. I've no idea whether they're doing, doing a good job or not, but very little seems to change at boardroom level. Uh, it's a bit of a staleness, a sameness a comfortableness. In fact, it's beginning to remind me of the board I was involved in getting rid of all those years ago, just very comfortable in their own position. So, you know, at the end of the day, the boss of the board is Ian Bankier, the chairman, and I think he's a pretty anodyne guy that doesn't really seem to be adding much value at all. And then you've got the other guys as well. Uh, Tom Allison has been around a while, and Brian Wilson, and... Dermot's a special case because although he's not non-executive, non he is that billionaire cornerstone investor we talked about. So the board, yeah, it looks a bit stale to me and maybe that's going to get looked at. Maybe the collapse in the team, the collapse in the performance, the, uh, uh, the mini rebellion of or an anger of the fans, if you want, is, is going to stoke these guys into action and maybe they'll, they'll start to... Start trying to make a difference and trying to make things better. But that, that, that's how a board works. It's a board that sets Peter Longwell's salary. 
and it's a board that decides whether he stays or he goes. Uh, everybody's angry. All the fans are angry because this is a shock. We didn't, didn't expect to be in this position. And uh, the buck stops at the top. If you get paid a, a million pounds a year, you can deal with this shit, quite frankly. So uh, that's that's just the way it is. The directors are ultimately responsible for uh, the position of the club. They get the accolades when things are going well, and they've got to you've got they've got to take the flak when things are, are are going badly. That's the way of the world. Dave, I need you to educate me and the listeners here, or some of the listeners. Okay, how do they become board members? Who nominates them? Who? How do you become? You know, like a, a non-executive director. Okay, I can understand an executive director is, is selected and he's put in that position, which is a full-time, well-paid position. So, how do these how do these board members come about, and do they get um, money? Yeah. Uh, so there's, like I said, there's a thing called a nominations committee, which has got three directors on it. Uh, and that that those three three non-executive directors are made up of of uh, non-executive directors on the board. And they are supposed to have a nominations committee meeting to discuss whether there should be any changes to the board. Now, last year, and this is a fact, uh, because it's in the accounts, Celtic produced their accounts and had an AGM on the 14th of December last year. And uh, the accounts showed that last year there were no nominee committee meetings. That means nobody met to discuss whether... The, the complexion of the non-executive directors was right, whether there should be a change or not, whether somebody should go or somebody new should come in. It wasn't deemed important enough or relevant enough to even have a meeting to discuss it. So that's where the staleness argument comes in. That's where it all uh, gets to look a little bit too comfortable and cosy, you know, when you can't even be bothered having a, com- uh, a nominations committee meeting. But the answer to your question is the board, the, no, the nominations committee sit down and decide whether it's anybody, somebody should go or somebody should stay. And that um, that's how the process is. Somebody's, a new person is invited onto the board. The rest of the board approve it. And that's them on the board. And then they, got, they get confirmed uh, by shareholders at the annual general meeting at the end of each year. And then it rotates every three years. Unless you've been there for more than nine years and you've got to get uh, re-elected every year, which is the case at Celtic. That's why I'm saying it's all a bit chummy, a bit matey. So it's the it's the it's also the directors that decide whether somebody goes. It's exactly the same treatment as the manager. If you want to change the chairman, the rest of the board of directors do that. And Celtic have changed their chairman four or five times since the 1990s for a variety of different reasons. And I've had four chief executives since 1994. Fergus, Alan McDonald, uh, what's his name, uh, Ian McLeod, Cloud, and as you said, Peter, since uh, 2003. So it is a long time to be chief executive. Uh, but that, there's nothing particularly wrong with that uh, if things are going swimmingly, i.e. profits are going up, the team is winning trophies domestically, competing well in Europe. Uh, these are the yardsticks uh, by which uh, uh, an executive director is, 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 is measured. What kind of money are these non-executive directors pulling from the club for sitting on the board? 
Yeah, it sounds like I'm doing mastermind here. <laughs> I, I think uh, they're on, they're on uh, 60 grand a year. So you have like eight board meetings a year. There'll be a whole lot of papers to read, but the non-executive directors uh, get 60 grand a year. I think when the virus started, they agreed to defer or uh, or take a reduction of, of uh, an undeclared percentage. So they're earning less just now, but it's unclear from the accounts uh, what that reduction is. But in a normal year, it's 60 grand sterling a year. Close of free tickets. Well, no, no, I, I don't think that's fair. You know, <laughs> Celtics, well, you get a free ticket for the game and a nice comfy seat and you get to eat quiche and chicken drumsticks. But that's what you mean. But look, no, no, being, being a non-executive director has responsibilities. It's the Celtic PLC, which is the entity that owns the football club. Uh, it's, as I said, it's quoted on the stock exchange. There's rules, there's regulations, there's protocols, uh, there's conduct and behaviour issues. It, these positions come with a lot of responsibility. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, non, I'm a non-executive of several companies myself. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm speaking this way. But no, I mean, you do deserve to get paid. For being a non-executive director, because you do do a job of work and you do do a role. What I've said is there's question marks about the 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 uh, the to what extent the current directors are doing the job that I think they should be doing. I think that and there are questions to be asked here, and you asked me the question, so I've answered it as best I can. You certainly have, and you've educated us because. You know, the, the general man on the street doesn't know what goes on in the boardroom, doesn't know how they work. Um, so it's good to have you on, David, and give us an insight into that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing back here and out to the football side. I'm going to come out of the boardroom and onto the pitch. We, we say we're a club. We, we say we're a club like no other, and uh, we've a history, a brilliant history. But since the last podcast, I took a little break after I had Eddie on the podcast. Eddie told him it was just coming up to the cup final, and I was just looking at what has happened. In those couple of weeks since, you know, they say a club like no other, a month like no other. So, and just a quick, you know, sweet recap an emotional roller coaster of a game which delivered a quadruple treble. You know, Neil Lennon under pressure, the first manager in the history of the club to do a treble as a player and manager. The performances by the team have improved with the injection of Sorrow and Turnbull finally getting the, the starting place. You know, we put in a good performance against Rangers. We played well before, you know, the, the red card to beat them. He gets sent off. We end up losing the game, you know, which we dominated for long periods. And then, you know, the boy, the trip, the follow, the late goal against Hibbs with the makeshift team that we had to throw out. It's been so popular stuff. No way at the start of the season, never mind the month, could you make up some of the stuff that we've been going through just your thoughts on the last couple of weeks. Oh, I, I'm no different than, than most Celtic fans. They're like uh, the, the collapse of the team, and I call it a collapse. Uh, I, I didn't see the collapse coming. I, I know our football had been not as good as it ha has been in recent seasons, but it, it, this is a collapse. Uh, and I think there's lots of reasons for it. Uh, but football aside, look, we played Rangers off the park on the 2nd of January and lost the game. You know, they, I wouldn't say they played us off the park, but they were easily the better team in the League Cup final last year and lost it. 
Sometimes these things happen. That's called football. But you can't look at one game in isolation. You have to look at you know game, games over a, a period of time. And, and, and we have been woeful until late. Uh, the game against the, the game against Rangers, in my opinion, is the best we've played all season anywhere for ninety minutes. We have played well for parts of games from the beginning of the season, but not for a whole game. We start we started to play well after games were lost, and then we started to play badly after we were in winning positions. So, you know, why has that happened? Uh, you know, I'm not a, a professional coach. Neither is any of the fans or most of the fans, but it has happened. I've got my own theories, and I my principal theory, and it's a personal uh, belief, is that you know half that team ain't playing for the jersey, half that team don't want to be there, half that team are seduced by the filthy lucre in the big leagues, half that team thinks they're better than they are, and half that team better get their act together. You know they won't be going anywhere the way things stand. And uh, I hasten to say that's a, a personal opinion. A lot of these foreigners come to Scottish football, come to Celtic, and they're sold it as a stepping stone into a bigger league. That's the gig. Virgil van Dijk came to Celtic on the basis that he would get his move to the Premier League or, or one of the other big three or four leagues. And this has been happening since the, the Canio, uh, Hoydonk, and the... And the cadet days, nothing's changed. Play well in Scotland, get your big move. And the gap between uh, your, a well-paid player in Scotland and an average player in England has never been wider. You know, Kieran Tierney uh, you know, quadrupled his wages and some. He shares dressing rooms with some of his mates in Scotland games. Everybody knows what the, the chasm is, the difference of wages. That has an unsettling effect. But that's no different than it was in the 70s and the 80s. What is different this time is that these, uh, these players in these situations have all come in a clutch all at once. You know, you can manage these uh, want-away people if it's, uh, if it's planned out you know, on a conveyor belt basis, one a year, uh, one a season, or maybe every two seasons. But when you get a bunch of players that appear, and I, and I hasten to add it's a personal opinion, you know, one away at the same time, that has a disruptive effect in the team. So the, the foreign players, you know, can kiss the badge as many times as they want. It counts for diddly squat because at the end of the day, you know, somebody, they're looking for a move and, and they're away. And some Scottish players or domestic players, have been called that, you know, I think are in the same boat. So I think that's been a huge factor. And, and, and I, I don't care who's the manager. I think whether it's Neil Lennon or... Uh, or, or Mourinho, you know, that's a difficult uh, situation to manage uh, in a short space of time. Uh, the other factor, of course, is this uh, behind closed doors, unfortunate situation. That appears to have uh, affected us badly, or, or worse, that's better, that's probably the correct word, worse than, than the other teams. I've heard people say, lots of people say that, you know, uh, Rangers play well because their fans are not shouting at them. For, for a, and, and uh, we're playing badly because our, our our fans aren't cheering the team on. I don't know whether that's true or not, but we seem to have been badly affected by the lack of atmosphere. Some some of the really unhappy people say, you know, Lenny's not up to it, and the tactics are are uh, are, are, are wrong. 
Well, I, I don't subscribe to that view. I, I, I think it's 11 against 11, and uh, we've got better players and a bigger squad than everybody, yeah, and I include the, the Rangers in that. There's lots of factors, but that, that, that's my... That's, you ask me the question, and that's the best I can make of it with an answer. I'm going to have to get you in down the Lennox Town to give these players a talk a bit. <laughs> well, maybe... But David, the, the Saddle Trust has been going for 20 years. As always, it steps up to the plate when needed, and then awareness becomes, you know, who, who are these people? I said, it was, we all, it was set up for, you know, small shareholders and the fan on the street to join and for the trust to buy shares so they would become shareholders and have a say in the running of the club. And then it, it also went off and it was involved in the fans against criminalisation. And when the, the fans were arrested in Amsterdam, they, they were involved in the legal cases there. So there was, there's a lot they do. And then they come to the fore. And then sometimes they disappear into, into the... When things are going well, they disappear. I've, I've been always a member of the trust. I think it's a it's just a brilliant concept. And as a non-shareholder, for me to have a say in the club for the couple of quid I pay every month is, is, is great. And it gives me a sense... That, um, I'm trying to make a difference, even if I'm not. But collectively, we can make a difference. Now, you got involved. I don't know if you're a member in the past, but you've come to the forefront now as the chair of the trust. Why did you get involved? And you know, why should we be telling other Celtic fans to get involved? There, there is a, a very good answer to that. But before I answer it, I'll, I'll say, yeah. I mean, the Celtic Trust has been around since 2000, and it's properly constituted. It is regulated, registered, sorry, with the Financial Conduct Authority in uh, in the UK. It has trustees who are all volunteers, and uh, it has a constitution, you know, which basically says that uh, we want to buy more shares to have more influence in, in, in the club, uh, amongst other things. So that that's the bedrock in which the Celtic Trust sits. And you're right, when, when things are going well, uh, there's not really uh, that much for the Celtic Trust to do. But they've been brilliant when campaign, when issues have arisen. You just alluded to them there. The, I think you mentioned the Defensive Behaviour uh, Football Act. There's the, the, the Dam Boys and, and, and the, the other matters that you raised. And uh, the Trust was at the forefront of getting justice for fans, making sure they were represented. And they didn't get the, the accolade or the respect. I think they were due for doing that because nobody else would do it. Let's be clear about that. Nobody else would have done it. Uh, sure, some of the, the supporters uh, association, you know, would probably get involved, did get involved, but it was the, the, the trust that took a leading role. So that's great. Uh, and I was aware of that from a, from a distance. But why did I get involved is your question. I, again, I think it's a very important time in Celtic's history. I got involved in the early 90s because I thought Celtic had a real serious problem. The game had changed. Uh, you needed big money. You needed professional management. You needed seats because of the Taylor report. Celtic had none of that. They had incompetent uh, directors, no money and no, no seats. So, you know, I had been working with Fergus McCann, who was in his early 50s at the time. He made his money, and we fought for two years to get him in, and we finally did in 1994. And that set us up for a generation, quite frankly. 
we finished that stadium that, that allows us 60,000 people in the ground with 50,000 season tickets which generates the money to pay for the players it's a very good uh, ecosystem that was correct, uh, created in the, uh, in the, the mid 90s late 90s the, one of the key things for me and certainly Fergus McCann was that the fans should have as much say as possible and the Ferguson shares were offered to the fans. The other half, he had half, and his half was ordered to the other fan. The other uh, half was ordered to the fans, and the fans took up a very healthy proportion of that because it's important that the fans have as many shares uh, in the club as possible and as much say in the affairs of the club as possible. And that was achieved to a very meaningful degree when Fergus left in 1999. And it was one, and he left, and he, you know, got married and had kids, and is living in America. Um, and you know, then I, I left in two thousand and one and got on with my stuff. So why did I sort of appear? <laughs> I don't know. Nine months ago, I, I think there's warning signs here because the, there's been two share share issues since I left. One in 2001 and another one in two thousand and five. And what that's achieved is to concentrate power, more power, in the hands of fewer and fewer uh, share, people, shareholders. On top of that, over since the 25, 26 years, since the first share issue, a lot of shareholders have died. A lot of shareholders have relocated to different areas, different countries, different continents in some place. And Celtic is the only share that I, that I believe they will ever own because they bought it not for, for principally for financial reasons, but because they wanted a, uh, an ownership, a part ownership of the club. But because it's the only share, you know, they're not as, as the word is sophisticated investors. Uh, they haven't updated their details the way they should. When somebody has died, you know, the shares haven't transferred to the beneficiary that inherited the shares as efficiently as it could. So what's happened is over the years, that's had a cumulative effect to the extent that a huge proportion of Celtic shares are lost, untraced, unable to vote on key matters as they arise. So what that means is if you've got 40%, everybody says, well, and I'm not picking a Dermot here, but everybody says, well, he's got 40% of the club. Well, that's 40% of all the shareholders. But if 10% of the shareholders are lost, or dare I say 20% of the shareholders are lost, his 40% becomes 50 or 60%. So he's basically got control. So I don't think, I don't think that's a healthy thing for one person uh, to... Well, when I say I, this is trust now. Trust I and trust and very many others. And I don't think it's a healthy situation for any one person, any one person, good or bad, to be in control to that extent because it's our club Without the fans, you started off with this, Andrew, the club is nothing. Without the money uh, that the fans put into the club, uh, the club is nothing. So the fans are the most important part of the club. Not the board, not the directors, not even the players. Boards come and go, players come and go, managers come and go. Who's always there? It's the fans. So the fans should have as much uh, <coughs> say as possible. And... Uh, Nobody should be in control if, if that's possible. So Dermot is a Celtic fan. You know, let's be clear about that. There's no question about that. But it's not healthy for one guy to have that amount of influence. 
Now, it's even worse than that because the second largest shareholder with 18%, and remember that 18% is more than 18% when a lot of shares are lost, has no emotional investment in the club, is not a Celtic fan or a Celtic supporter. Those shares have been purchased to make money through a rising share price, almost certainly on, in the belief that at some point Celtic will play in a more lucrative jurisdiction, i.e. they will leave the Scottish uh, uh, league and play in the English league or some other more financially lucrative uh, market. So this is an, an unemotional uh, shareholder who, if the price is right, you know, will sell his shares tomorrow. So what that means is a controlling interest in Celtic Football Club could be sold this evening and there's nothing we could do about it. So that's why I joined the trust. And, and everybody says, well, the trust only get 25,000 shares. Well, to everybody that says that, you're miss I, I say you're missing the point. At the end of the day, the trust is a, an umbrella, you know, a focal point and a regulated one and an organised one and a properly constituted one. It's very difficult to criticise. And we basically want small shareholders to rally around the flag, if you like, uh, that flag being the, the trust flag. And we're democratic because whether you put a tenner in or whether you put a thousand in, you always get one vote. Money doesn't talk here. Votes talk. One man or woman, one vote. So we're a rallying point for small shareholders, number one. Number two, we're in the business of uh, reuniting uh, supporters whose shares have been lost or untraced. We know how to do that. And we are already doing that. And we are reactivating shares and votes, etc. Now, I have to say, in that respect, we're working with Celtic in doing that. And Celtic are very helpful. And Celtic are, are, have no problems with this. But it took us to make it happen. If we had not made that happen, it wouldn't be happening. So that's an important point. So that's number two. We're reactivating dead shares. And number three, of course, is the more members we have, the more money we have. And another point I want to make here, you're not making a donation. Some of the mischief makers say, why should I make a donation? Well, you're not making a donation. You're making a subscription. You're joining a trust. It's not a donation. You become a member. You have a vote. You're not giving anything away. Anyway, the more money members we have, the more money we have, the more money we have, the more shares we buy. So between buying more shares, reactivating dead shares, and getting the support of small shareholders, we have a model which fulfills that original objective of Burgess McCann, myself, and many others, and that is to give supporters, fans, a greater say in the club than they have at the moment. And nobody anywhere can say that's a bad thing. You, you mentioned Fergus, though. I've, I've heard it, it been said that Fergus wanted the majority of his shares to go to the group like the Trust or, you know, the fans. But yet they were sold on to Dermot. Is that correct? Not correct. In fact, there was an argument uh, at, at the time. There was a big pressure put on Fergus. The easy thing to do, so Fergus has got... 51%, and Fergus is leaving in 1999 because he said he was leaving and everybody knew he was leaving. Uh, but he also said that his fan, his shares were going to be offered uh, to the fans. Now, that was a major exercise. It was basically a major exercise, I have to say, 
that I organized so I can claim some authority, some knowledge of the true situation. It's not, it's not a theory. I, I was involved and made it happen, so I know what happened. Fergus was, was under pressure to not offer his shares to the fans. Uh, I, I don't really want to say who put him under pressure, but he existed, uh, he resisted that pressure, and the fans were offered his half as promised in 1999 via a, a Williams de prospectus who, who I, I was involved in appointing. And a very significant number of fans uh, took up those shares. They didn't know, they did not take up all of them. And you've got to remember, Dermot was already the second largest shareholder after Fergus in the club. So in this offer, which was to the other shareholders, the vast majority of whom were fans, Dermot was always also entitled, legally entitled, I have to say, to more shares, which he, which he took up. So what it really meant is that the fans were offered the shares, the fans took up the shares, but so did Dermot. So that was in 1999, but what happened, I've already alluded to or sorry, stated earlier, was that there have been two further share issues since Fergus left. One was in uh, 2001 to raise another $20 million to finance the team after uh, John Barnes left, I think it was. And the second one was in 2005, when Celtic were short of money, uh, it was a cheap shares were offered at uh, thirty pence to everybody. So uh, that's the, these are the facts of the matter. Fergus McCann offered all all his shares to the, all the other shareholders, the vast bulk of whom were fans, uh, and he did what he, he said he was going to do, and that's a fact. Fergus was the fan that came back and played his part in building that fabulous stadium we have now, but. Now, your, your love of Sadler goes back forward or to the old stadium. Can you take us back to a young David Lowe, early memories and growing up and following himself, and getting educated? And, you know, who who yeah. is David Lowe? Where did he come from? Well, you know, I, I'm a, I've been around the block and uh, my first game, I wasn't expecting to ask this, so I have to watch my dates. I think it was in 1966, but I, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that my first football game was not a Celtic game. <laughs> That's the first thing. Because uh, my mother, well, my, my father was a govern, uh, from Govan. He was a big Celtic man. He was Ducks of St. Gerard's. And, uh, and my mother was from Cowcadden's. Anyway, they were, up, up, they, would, they were what's called a upwardly mobile, shall we say. <laughs> and, uh, my father did very well, but my mother didn't want my father to take me to those to get involved in all that Catholic Protestant Celtic Rangers thing. So we stayed in the south side of Glasgow and my father was forced to take me to uh, see Third Larnock versus Aberdeen, I think it was. A, 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 but that year Third Larnock went bust, i.e. ceased to exist. They're one of only four clubs incidentally that that were liquidated and don't exist anymore. That's <laughs> Third Larnock, Airdrionians, Gretna, and Rangers. I just had to get that in. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> anyway, to, uh, to uh, get back to the point, Third Larnock went bust and it coincided with Jock Steen coming in. And you've got to remember uh, I mean, there's a great guy sits next to me at Celtic, Peter Riley. He's man, he must be 80 now, and I hope he's okay. I've not spoken to him. Uh, 
since all this virus started. Uh, he, he used to tell me how rubbish Celtic were prior to a jock scene coming in. So I, I sort of appeared in the scene, and there's lots of people my age are exactly the same, just when Celtic were taken off. So the Larnet went bust. My father, he took me to Celtic, and that's where the uh, the whole thing kicked off. My first game was away from home at, uh, at Motherwell, uh, and it was I think it, was, it might even have been the first of the nine. I was only like eight or something at the time, seven or eight. We were there like an hour and a half before kickoff. And the place was mental, people on the stands, up the floodlights, all that stuff. But it was so exciting to a seven or eight-year-old. I was, like, fixated. And then I, throughout the, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, I went to just about every home game uh, if if we could get a seat in the stand. Because, again, they didn't want me in the terrace too, too, too crazy. Uh, and the odd away game, you know, big carryouts, no safety belts, cigarette smoke everywhere. Uh, so that's where my Celtic thing started, uh, getting taken to a Celtic, and I've been watching them ever since. And my God, it's been the best of times and the worst of times. It's an emotional roller coaster. It's addictive. <laughs> no, can't so get that, out of the system. So thank God, Paul Gallagher never business. Now listen, I can't really, you can't really say that. Well, thankfully, thank, thankfully, Third Larnock went out of business. I, I don't think. I don't think that's a nice thing to say. But that's what happened. It's not a nice thing, but it's it's uh look if you have another business you could be you could be running the Toad Atlantic Trust now. Yeah, yeah, it could be yeah. I, what was that, that? I think they were called the high high or something. You would have missed not one, but two nine in a row. Two nine in a row, yeah. Yeah. And a, and a clutch of trebles. Uh, I could even be more controversial and say that the best game I've seen wasn't even a Celtic game, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't tell you that game unless you ask me. <laughs> the best okay. Celtic games that I've been to are uh, the 4-2 game in 78, the St Mirren game in uh, 86, I think it was, was it? Yeah. Uh, I've got the Nakamura game against Manchester United, uh, the 2008 League Championship beat Rangers twice and Dundee United in the last game. Uh, these were all brilliant games. Uh and it's, it's been brilliant fun, and I hope it will continue to be brilliant fun sporting Celtic. But it isn't just now. And then, you know, you're a young fan, Celtic fan, get yourself uh, educated, get yourself into finance. How did you get involved with Fergus to take over? What role did you play? So uh, I, uh, I uh, had a very good 1980s. I, I, I made quite a lot of money pretty young. And I opted out of the greasy pole backstabbing world of international relocations every few years and moved back to Glasgow with a, a very young family. Uh, and I decided I was only going to get involved myself in things that I enjoy. And that was music, the music industry and uh, football, Celtic. So that's exactly what I did. But this also coincided with a big change in the game. Uh, until the mid-1980s, nobody lent any money to football clubs. Football clubs lived within their means. You spent what you earned and no more. All of that sort of changed with the election of uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. All the financial markets get loosened up. It was very easy to borrow money whether you're a company or get a mortgage if you were buying a house. And that's when money came into football. 
So Rangers uh, were taken over in 1986. A new board came in. Uh, they borrowed five million quid. They spent it on Graham Souness and a bunch of players. Then they ran out and a guy called, I've forgotten his name, what was it again? David Murray uh, came in in 1988 and he changed the game. He started borrowing like borrowing was going out of fashion and Rangers sort of took off. I'm talking about on the park uh, by borrowing money, buying uh, players from England. And they had the bedrock of the England team because they were banned from uh, playing in Europe. Uh, because of the Heisel disaster and Liverpool fans. So Rangers started to take off with, with better players, bigger squads. And, our, and David Murray is an entrepreneur, a swashbuckling entrepreneur, without getting into the, all the history and the politics of it all. And we had a, a bunch of incompetent directors with no money. So the gap between Celtic and Rangers was, was widening and widening and widening. And for somebody like me who came in supporting this team at 66, had seen nine in a row, two European Cup finals, semi-finals, quarter-finals. This is the Celtic. I was used to being the top team, the best team in Scotland, not some remote second fiddle to to Rangers. So I wasn't the only one that thought this. And somehow or other, we all got together. And Fergus was one of these guys. He was in Montreal at the time, and I went over to see him, and we all believed that Celtic were, were doomed to mediocrity unless there was a dramatic change. So the board refused to go. The board thought they were Celtic. It took two years to get rid of them, but we eventually got rid of them in 1994 and put all this money in. And we injected into the club all the things that were missing, good management, money, and we built a stadium. Uh, but even then, remember, I mean, there's lots of young people that you know, weren't familiar with any of this because it's so long ago. But... Uh, it was very tough trying to stop Rangers winning nine because they still had more money than us. Because all the money that we were generating had a, a, a big slug of it had to go in and, to build the stadium. Until that stadium was built and paid for, we were always going to have less money uh, than Rangers, especially as they were borrowing money that they could never pay back. So we did succeed <laughs> by the skin of our teeth uh, stopping the nine. And uh, that was great satisfaction. And, you know, Fergus left in 99 and I left in 2001 because I can tell you, see, when you're uh, involved in all this stuff, it's very difficult to enjoy supporting Celtic, you know, because you've got other things in your mind. There's other things to worry about. Uh, it's just it's difficult. So I, I, I was delighted to be away from it all. I, and I support, enjoyed it, I have to tell you, <laughs> being away from it all. So you, you came in then with Fergus. What was your role at the club? I was uh, engaged as a consultant and one of the principal areas that I was involved in was getting the message out uh, to the supporters worldwide because supporters relied heavily on what is now called the mainstream media. And the mainstream media, particularly when Fergus were there, and I'll see it, were exceptionally anti-Celtic. It was true then and it's true now to a degree. It's not nearly as bad as it was then. But so I would do these roadshows. I get involved in setting up the North American Federation and doing a satellite deal and collective bargaining. But basically it was to get the message out because fans were getting the wrong message. There was also a couple of other big Celtic business types that were very mischievous and were pissed off because they 
they didn't get to uh, sit in the big seat. Uh, so, you know, Celtic fans are, are, are good at arguing with each other, as you probably you probably know. Uh, so my, my job was to get a positive message out, and it was very difficult. I mean, my personality enjoys it, though, standing in front of a baying audience when they're all shouting, give him the money, give the canio the money, or give him what he wants, give him it twice. <laughs> so it's very difficult trying to explain that, no, we are not going to borrow money like David Murray if we can't pay it back. No, we're not going to, having been through all this, put the club's future stability at risk by borrowing money we can't pay back. We're not going to spend uh, more than we earn. Uh, we're going to we're going to be around forever and a day. We're not going to uh, speculate and gamble with with uh, with the football club. Now, when Rangers are, are winning six, seven, and eight in a row, that's a difficult message to get across to fans that are getting all their information from the the, the Daily Record and the Sunday Mail. So that's why a small, and not a lot of people realise this, a small proportion of Celtic fans booed Fergus. A large proportion, another proportion of Celtic fans are booing the guys that are booing Fergus. So anyway, it was a difficult job at the time. If you were speaking to him, he'd tell you that. Anyway, he had no idea the sheer stress and weight uh, of expectation of fans and, and the weight on his shoulders. Uh, it was tough, but we came out the other end, all of us collectively. He had a very good board around him, very good uh, chairman succeeded him, uh, Brian Quinn, a uh, very good finance director. This, this club, uh, you know, is or was certainly uh, very well run. So, But it was tough back in the 90s. When Rangers were were, were the, the top dogs with money they didn't have. It's just it's it's it's, it's amazing to hear you. Um, about you you're speechless there. You look as if you were speechless. Yeah, <laughs> when you hear about like the pressure that he was under and the canio and the boon and because you know Fergus he wasn't that popular. You know he wasn't. He, 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 when you young people would think you know this guy must have been this guy must have been you know put up in a pedestal and what he done. But at the time. There was resentment there towards Fergus, and you hear so many stories. And you've actually walked up, so we're getting we're getting you know, the proper picture here because you heard so many stories about Fergus being this, that, and the other. You know, every second taxi driver, you know, seemed to bring Fergus into the stadium when you jump in a taxi in, in Glasgow. They'd be telling you stories with Fergus. And what was it like to walk firstly to walk with, and secondly, when he did stop the town, your personal. Uh, memories of that day and what was Fergus like? Was it was it a case of it's business, it's job done, or was he, you know, celebrating like the rest of us? No, I, I, well, I was definitely celebrating, but I mean, we all, all of us celebrate in different ways, just as managers in the touchline celebrate in different ways. Players as well, some of us are very emotional, some of us less so. He's at the, the less emotional end of the scale. But look, this guy uh, he was is a very big and genuine uh, Celtic fan. Of that, there was no doubt. Nobody, uh, nobody invests ninety percent of the personal wealth of accumulated in their fifties in a football club, unless they're a huge Celtic fan and maybe a little bit crazy. <laughs> you know? uh, which, which you could see that Fergus, if he's not crazy, he's certainly eccentric. He's also very stubborn, also very opinionated, also very uh, religious. He's 
he's sort of very a lot of things. Uh, and uh, I don't agree with him on several things, but on the big Celtic things, certainly, I don't think anybody could have led. I mean, let's be clear, he didn't do it on his own. You know, that's what it sounds like. He had very good guys behind him uh, and around him, but needed somebody with his focus and determination to sort of lead it. But the other people played a big role in the sort of uh, the re re. Uh, Regenesis of Celtic, you know, John Keane uh, always did what was asked of him on time without fuss. Uh, you know, an Irishman from uh, Mayo, who I'm sure you know, or you know who I'm talking about, hey, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's a very old man now, but he, he, he was a huge, uh, he played a huge role in, a, in a Celtic uh, getting back on the tracks again. Yeah, as did others, but, uh, you know, Fergus was the, the guy at the front, the guy that... Uh, had the business plan. It was his business plan. We had to build the stadium. Without the stadium, you were nothing. Other people wanted to put benches in the jungle and all this stuff, uh, but that's that's just cheapskate. Uh, this was a plan for the what was then the 21st century, uh, which we're now in, of course. But uh, that, that that was the foundations in which we have enjoyed dominance since then, with a few. Uh, aberrations and we're still around you know we didn't get liquidated because we are we're run properly and the current board's trying to run as pro- properly but as a you've got to get the balance right between between a finance and a successful team uh, and maybe that's a wee bit out of kilter just now but that's me speaking personally and i'll stop doing that yeah when, when i met john Keane, i think it was the open slogan at the brutal art monument um Unveiling. Uh, it was a kind of a weekend event, and he was a gentleman, Fosby, and he was introduced me to me. Uh, I think it was John Fan introduced and said, "This is one of the men that saved Celtic." Oh, yeah. did John underwrite um, some money? You know, when the club was going under, was that his role? No, if you're talking about when the when, when everybody had to step up. Well, first of all, John, John invested a million quid when they had a share issue in. Uh, in, uh, in the June 1994, but uh, in March 1994, Fergus put up a million with the bank. Sorry, paid off the overdraft a million on the fourth of March, then uh, another four million uh, the, uh, later in the week. So it was Fergus that put in five million uh, the first week in March, basically. Then everybody else put their money in later. In June, but uh, you know, John, John Keane was at all the meetings, and he was involved in putting money into Celtic, million pounds. But as I said, I think it was uh, in June 1994. And then outside the stadium, then as well, there was, there was the Sales for Change group. How did you? How did you, um, did you? How did you build the relationship with the Sales for Change group? And how did Fergus? Well, we were, uh, you know, the board uh, didn't want to go. Uh, and, you know, we were at this for two years and people came and people went. And, but there was a small nucleus that were determined to see it through because we believed it would work. But I think it was important to have what I, I would call a, a street movement involved. And, uh, and that's the role that uh, Celts for Change played. So they played a big role in pushing the effort over the line. Uh, it was founded by uh, Brendan Sweeney, who's written a couple of brilliant books. I don't know if you've read them yet. <laughs> Two very big, thick books. I can read three pages, three pages a night. You know, it's, but uh, Brendan was one, one, one of the founders, sorry, of Celtic, a big Celtic guy to this day. And they played a crucial role 
in pushing it over the line, mobilising fans, uh, you know, placards, uh, even got as far as uh, boycotting a game, which is a very sensitive subject for many, uh, the Kilmarnock game uh, you know, late in the season. So not they played a big role in, in getting the, the, the initiative over the line, but it was always going to be money, 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 money. Football is about money. Unfortunately, it's about money. Uh, as each year goes by, it becomes more and more about money. And the money doesn't buy success, but no money buys no success. That's a Fergus McCann quote from 1993. So uh, we needed money and, and we got it. I have to say also, the, the contribution of the fans is all, always overlooked. Everybody forgets that fans put in 14 million quid at the end of 1994 and at the beginning of 1995. That was a, a record uh, a record uh, fundraise for a football club anywhere in the world. It may, it may, may still be. <coughs> I, I think it probably is still the case. So, you know, fans stepped up uh, in, in record numbers back then. That takes us back to what I was talking about earlier. That is, uh, that's like uh, 26, 27 years ago. People have died, people have moved. And a lot of these shares, the votes have been lost. So Celtic Trust is uh, reuniting uh, supporters with their shares. So yeah, that's us back to the beginning now. <laughs> and uh, do, you, do you still speak to Fergus? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, my last trip before the virus struck was uh, in, in the States where, where, where I was with him. So that's... Uh, that's a year ago, almost a year ago. So, and, and you know, we are, we are in, in, in touch on a few matters, I have to say. And uh, this, this issue of fan ownership, fan participation, reactivating dead shares is, is close to, 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 to his heart as well. So, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're going to be pushing over the rest of the year. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it needs to be pushed. It needs to be kept in the spotlight because it, it is... We've spoke about it with Jeanette, we've spoke with Mark Volk was on, Mark was uh, spoke about the Irish involvement in this in the sense of change and how the kind of all the Irish uh, support schools got on board. And I think now we're seeing that now over here in Ireland. There is clubs contacting and saying, right, what's the story of the Celtic Trust? And I think down the line, people will start. I know Jeanette was on with the net, had a Zoom meeting with the Night Park Sports Club, which is a big club in Dublin, which which yeah. Mark founded. So and I think that can fizzle down to all the clubs. I think all the clubs yeah. can, and it can be done through Zoom or it can be done when we're back physically against them. I only see, yeah. I only see the shareholding of the trust going now. I think it's it's it, it's going up, and because the feedback we've had from any time we spoke about it on the podcast, we've had brilliant feedback. On, you know, both privately, yeah. and both people people voicing their opinions on social media. And that. So, from the point of view, from someone that's been in the trust from the early days, it's 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 rewarding to see, and it was great to see the tweet going out after one of the meetings. Uh, so many shares were asking Bob because that's really what it's about having a having a say. And I do believe that I can leave a legacy to my son, and he can leave a legacy to his son. That the trust grows and becomes, you know, it may never take over the club, but it certainly will have a say in the in the AGMs, which we don't really have yeah. now because we don't have. The 50,000 season ticket holders are, are, you know, are customers. 50,000 yeah. 50, season ticket holders joining the Celtic Trust makes a massive difference. I, I, I think you're right. So uh, we want more members, uh, more subscription fees. We buy more shares and uh, we get more influence. Uh, when you ally that to uh, 
shares that fans already have and shares that we're bringing back to life, this is potentially a big number. And it is what it is. The, the football club is owned by the PLC, and uh, we may not like it, but it is what it is. So we've just got to live with it. And uh, what we're talking about is, is how we live with it. If we're living with it, we're going to have a say in it. And that's what this is all about. Here, here. Now, David, before I, before I let you go, and thank you so much for taking time to chat to me and to give the listeners a, a brilliant insight into the 94 takeover and, you know, boardrooms and how, how clubs are run and PLCs and so forth. Now, I have an imaginary time machine and I put all my, I put all my uh, guests in it and they can go any, back in time to any Celtic game they attended or it could be a moment, it could be the moment that the Rebels won the war. You know, at Celtic Park. You know, if you can go back to a moment or a memory of me, time machine, where does it take you? All right, I, I'm into a, you know history and all the old tenements, black and white pictures, games with with the old strips and collars. And the, a game that I would have loved to have been at was the Scottish Cup final, the first tournament we won with the trophy we won with Jockstein when we beat a Dunfermline three two with a Billy McNeil header. That is the tournament, that is the trophy that kicked it all off, uh, that that Scottish Cup final. Uh, and I hope I've got my date slip right, <laughs> 1966. Uh, so that, that, that would have been great to have been, been at that. I remember reading about it in my plain, plain, plain or Scottish football books, but I always remember that was such an iconic header that won that game. And Dunfermline were a very good team at the time. And Dunfermline were put, set on their course by, guess who? Jock Steen, uh, who was uh, Dunfermline's manager uh, before he was the Celtic manager. So that would have been a great game to be at. The, I was actually at the game, the Motherwell game I mentioned this earlier. That was the, the game that won us the first of the nine. And uh, as, as I said, fans up, floodlights on the roof. This was a Celtic coming of age for a generation, for older guys that were used to bad performances and for younger guys coming coming into the Celtic um, way of life. That crossover period was a great period for young and old, or old and young. Uh, another game I remember my father being at, and he, to this, well, he's dead now, but up to the day he died, he says we were robbed by Liverpool. We played in the semi-final of what was named the Cup Winners' Cup and uh, Bobby Leonard scored a goal. I think it was at Anfield, and it was disallowed when it shouldn't have been. These are all the brilliant memories of when Celtic were coming alive again. Uh, so uh, that's my Doctor Who's TARDIS moment in time. <laughs> Brilliant. So many players speak with that. I've been lucky enough to interview some of the players from the 60s, and so many speak about that 65. Cup for when yeah. things changed, and uh, for the better, that uh, was the stepping stone. Yeah. The, the, yeah. glorious, the glorious success that followed. Dave, as I said, it's been brilliant to hear about you know the ins and outs of Sadik, but it's also been great to get a little into your Sadik soul and hear about you know, your early games and take you in the time machine. So all I can say is yeah. thank you very much and every success with the Sadik Trust. And can you just give a shout out to when the next meeting is? The, the next meeting of members of the trust is the 26th of January. Obviously, it's a Zoom meeting because of the virus, but uh, invites it's a, it's a members-only meeting, and the invites will go out near the time. Sorry, Dave, I will post up on the podcast description all the 
all the trust details for people to join or to read up with the trust and so forth. So, as I said, thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. It's been great fun and uh, keep up the good work, Andrew. Hail, hail. Bye-bye. <laughs> great to chat to Dave on the show it's great to get his take on what's going on and off the park at Celtic just now and look back at the past and his contribution I suppose to the takeover but now we have to look towards the future and as we spoke about on the podcast there Celtic fans can play a big part now in the future of Celtic by joining the Celtic Trust more than 90 minutes issue 112 will be out early next week and you can pre-order the print edition on the website the digital issue will be on sale possibly on Monday just waiting for everything to be signed off by the graphic designer and as always I'll have the link to purchase the fanzine in the podcast description you can also download the digital edition by visiting CelticFanzine.com as I said from Monday anyone taking out a 12 month subscription will receive a free t-shirt and anyone taking out a 3 month subscription will get a free badge in the post with your first issue all subscribers also get the digital copy of each issue while they wait for the print copy to drop through the letterbox and they get access to the digital back issue library and again all the subscription details will be in the podcast description with no match day sales without your support there would be no print issue so once again thank you so much for supporting us as we now enter our 20th year doing the fans in hard to believe don't forget folks to visit our online shop where you can see our t-shirts and merchandise and we always post out all orders if they come in before noon each day and each issue we throw out a special offer for the listeners so this episode if you buy a t-shirt we'll throw in a handful of our badges and again the details will be in the podcast description as always, thank you to my producer, Ronan McQuillan. And as I said, if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, you can become a member, subscribe, buy, or donate for the price of a point. All the details there are on the website, celticfansin.com. You can also download our free app and you'll have access to the podcast, articles, daily news, video, info on upcoming events, fanzine, and of course, you can click into our online shop or the touch of a button on your phone or tablet. That's available on Google and Apple to download. All episodes of the podcast are now available across all platforms and whatever your preferred podcast platform is just hit the subscribe or follow button and you'll never miss an episode instagram if you visit our page you can just click straight into spotify there and while i'm on social media don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram thanks again to our episode sponsor eugene cabinet of orange skip as i said he's, he's been supporting us for 20 years so eugene thanks very very much for the continued support and if your business or Celtic Supporters Club love the podcast or even just like it and would like to become a sponsor, you can email us at info at com, or you can contact us through the website or message us on social media. If you enjoyed the conversation with today's guest, Dave Lowe, and would like to listen more about the takeover of Celtic in 94 and the Celtic Trust, I recommend you give episode 13 a listen when we chatted to Matt McGlone, the founder of the Cells for Change. Episode 47 with Mark Bourke. Mark took us through the Dundalk meeting and the support the Irish fans had and meetings on ferries, etc, etc, during that Cells for Change period. And also, I can't leave out episode 46 when Celtic Trust stalwart Jeanette Finley was our guest. So folks, that's all for this episode of the show. Enjoy the weekend and the Livingston game. The league title has been taken out of our hands now, so we need other teams to step up and take points off the Rangers. All we can do now as fans is to watch from a distance while getting organised by joining and supporting the Celtic Trust and hope that the team can put an unbelievable run together and that Rangers fall over a few hurdles as we wait for the next weeks and months to play out on and off the field at Celtic. We want to lend our support to musicians, performers and songwriters out there who have been hit the hardest by this lockdown restrictions. With no gigs and no venues. So send your material to us and we'll give you a plug. We'll stick your details in the podcast description and we'll play out of each show with you. We've had 
had some dance acts with us, we've had some folk singers, we've had a bit of Celtic stuff, and this week we play out with our first poem from the very talented Glasgow poet Aaron Boyle. Stay tuned, stay safe, and keep the faith. One club, four seasons, 12 trophies. Celtic, you've done it again. My tears stream, and it seems that these good times, the glory days, will never end. And it all started when Rogic sent the ball right to the back of the net. We're screaming and greeting like Wayne's history was made. It'll never be done again, the papers say. But then, treble number two, the double, and it's true. Cham and McGregor headering us to history. Hamden's rocking, the pups are bouncing, the music's playing and the papers are saying... It'll never be done again. But then, treble number three, a trinity of trebles, and the streets are filled with green and white. What a sight! From the Barris to oil rigs to New York City. It's a pity. Because it'll never be done again. Now, the streets are deserted. And a Celtic echo whistles through paradise of our heroes gone by. Fans who sat before us, front row seats for the ghosts of the jungle. Ghosts of legends line up at the tunnel. It's silent as we watch. From iPads and TV screens, our team, now nothing is what it seems. 2020 is not quite the year we thought it would be. Our hearts are sore. And tributes pour out to our key workers in the NHS and no one knows what's coming next. Celtic, you're always there through the good times and the bad. We pray and we keep the faith. And that day, history was made in December. No shorts in Hamden, but Christmas trees and please, please Celtic, make history. Christy fires it to the back of the net, then a penalty, Edwards. Then Celtic let down their guards. 2-1, then 2-2. Is this just too good to be true? This was a gift from our heroes gone by, from loved ones we've lost, watching from the skies. From Tommy Burns and Billy McNeil, from Johnston Chamler Thompson, that's why it's so surreal. So let's raise a glass. Celtic, you've done it again. Beautiful Sunday, the 20th of December.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 